Hello fellow adventurers and welcome to the Nerd Lab, where we transform our gaming passion into incredible game designs and learn how to nerd like a boss. My name is Marvin and I'm an ambitious game designer on my quest to develop a cooperative fantasy card game. For this podcast, my vision is to take you with me on this exciting journey. Together we will explore the secrets of different game mechanics and reach the next level as a game designer. In episode 25 of the Nerd Lab, um, I will chat with a very special guest today um, about synergies, combos and engine building in board games and card games. Um, this topic is very interesting for me because I love games that have a lot of synergy, where I can dive deep into the game um, and try to figure out um, hidden combo pieces and synergies between cards. So, without further ado, let's dive directly into the topic, um, have fun and enjoy the interview. Today I have a very special guest for you. He is the designer of a beautiful game that combines elements of tableau building and worker placement. And the game does it in a very streamlined way. That means the rules are relatively simple and the game is easy to learn. But just because the rules are simple doesn't mean the game is simple. Players can follow a variety of different tactics um, and the complexity of the game is more or less hidden behind the cards and the combination of components. And that is exactly one aspect I really wanted to talk about um, today. How to design synergies and combos in a board game. I'm proud to have um, a master of this trade today. Please welcome with me to the show James Wilson, the designer of Everdell. Hi. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. Thanks, Marvin. I'm very proud to have you on the show today. And I'm also very glad that you agreed to talk about the design process of Everdell and especially about um, the topic of synergies in games. Oh, I'm I'm honored. Thank you for having me. But before we dive into our main topic, um, please tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey as a game designer. How did it come you are designing games today? Yeah, for sure. Um, I... I'm 33 years old, and I've been playing games in some fashion for as long as I can remember. It really started probably like a lot of people with video games for a long time growing up, just a variety of different types of games that I that I enjoyed. And in, two, in 2009, actually, so just 10 years ago, because I was, I was kind of looking this up and wondering it, 10 years ago, we bought Carcassonne, and that started it, really, for us getting into board games you know before that we did your, your common monopolies and scrabbles and these sorts of things and they weren't i don't know they just didn't kind of grab us um you know i was really into video games at the time my wife didn't grow up playing video games and i wanted something i could do with her and when we found carcassonne we just both loved it and like we spent all night long dreaming of roads and cities and stuff after playing that you know <laughs> for the very first time it was just ingrained into our mind And it was exciting to me because it's kind of this new type of board game that I hadn't really experienced or engaged with at all. And we just we got into it after that and just kept going and going and going and trying out new games and discovering a new world for us, really, that we both enjoyed. Uh, so that's kind of how we got started into more of the hobby games. And then it was probably about three years or so after that that I, I thought that I would want to try for fun. Uh, to design something myself and at that time I had no thought that I would publish it that it would get published that I would even try to publish it at all it was really just we took some elements from some of our favorite games of the time and thought of a different way to put them together that I 
thought we might enjoy. We didn't really find that exact game on the market at the time, so really we were designing it for ourselves, and it we just kept working on it for years and years and years. So I kind of got started without trying to get started, if if that makes sense. <laughs> it does. Yeah, but it 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 kept going, and you know we worked on it off and on for a couple years, and then we showed it to some of our friends. I'm talking, of course, about Everdell, but it wasn't Everdell at that time. It was it was many different things. And showed it to some of our friends, and and they they wanted to play it again, and they they said, you know, you really got something neat here that we really enjoy, and we we thought maybe it was just our game because we loved it, we but they they loved it too, and we showed it around to others, and kept kind of getting that response. This is really neat, and so we decided to start trying to get it published, and that in and of itself was a journey, but that's sort of how we got started. Man, that's a great story. Let me make a confession here. Uh, I never played Carcassonne. You now, Marvin. <laughs> <laughs> Carcassonne to me, um, it was my, it was my first game. Like I said, it was really a hobby game. I still consider it one of the best games that I have ever played in my life. It, if you take it now, I think, and you compare it to modern games, it has this elegance and the simplicity to it that is that I know now from having trying to design games is really extremely hard to achieve. Um, it's elegant and simple. You can teach it almost instantly. And yet while being a simple game, the depth of how well you can play that game and the strategy is really deep. And I love it. I think it's a, I think it's an amazing game that I would be sad if it, if people forget about it as more new games come out, because it's a classic. I, I wish I could design something that, brilliant i think it's wonderful yeah i heard i heard that a lot and i think many of the german households have the game at home um yeah but um well i never had the chance to play it and maybe i will in the future so um but let's get back to to your game everdell mm -hmm. i believe i told you at some point already james but everdell's board presence is really incredible <laughs> there were days when my complete instagram feed was almost exclusively filled with everdell pictures <laughs> Re really I, i scrolled through my uh, instagram board and then every second picture was uh, a picture of the 3d tree in of everdell <laughs> and i i even uh, wrote uh, comments like um Is it wrong to buy a board game just because of the 3D tree? And I think I think uh, people really loved the board presence. They loved it so much that they maybe bought the game because of it, and uh, they definitely loved it so much to to take a lot of pictures and share the pictures of it. But that's yeah, that's how sure. I got uh, got um, got to know about the game by by seeing all that uh, pictures of the board um, of Everdell, and it really impressed me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I. I can't take a huge amount of credit for that. I was kind of more of an advisor on that, I suppose, and a brainstormer. I mean, there's an interesting backstory to how the world of Everdell came about. I don't know if we want to dive into that. Maybe let's start by um, giving a short introduction about Everdell. What, what is the game? What is it about for this small, tiny portion of my listeners who maybe haven't heard about the game? <laughs> okay. Could you give a short explanation, please? Absolutely, I'd love to. So Everdell, mechanically what it's doing is combining two different genres of worker placement and tableau building, where you are playing cards that permanently stay face up in front of you, and they are going to give you abilities, and they're going to work off of each other, and they're going to help you manipulate other aspects of the game. So really, I wanted to take those two and streamline them as much as possible, 
and then put them together in a way where they didn't feel like they clashed, but they complemented each other. So that's really what's going on mechanically. Theme-wise, we've built a, a world, a, a world that's getting bigger and bigger as the years go, go on, of the anthropomorphic critters, kind of like something like Everdell or Mouse Guard. Um, but our twist to Everdell is that it's really not a game about war or um, battles and that sort of thing, but but more about you know these the mice and the um, and the the badgers and the rabbits and this sort of thing really living a uh, a nice normal sort of medieval type of life in this beautiful valley of Everdell and the world building was just as important to us as the mechanics of the game and. All the time that I developed the game, that theme was not present. It was more of kind of a generic medieval and a little bit of fantasy world, which was fine and served the game just fine, but it wasn't as special um, as it could have been and needed to be. So the theme of Everdell was something that when I presented the game to the publisher, the uh, the main developer there, whose name is Dan May, said, what do you think about pulling this into – kind of a critter sort of forest theme of some type and and I I loved that idea you know I was a fan of Redwall and things of that sort so we just we we had a core there of gameplay already but then we together started building okay what is our world that we are creating how can we make this as immersive and unique and special as possible to really lure a lot of people in because we feel like we have a really strong game here and we want to find something to just transport people into. So in a roundabout way, that's kind of where that those two things came together and, and how that came to be. Yeah, and I think you did a really, really good job there. I, I love the theme and um, I know many people also love the theme because it's it's different and it's refreshing. It's new. It's something that you typically don't see. Mm -hmm. in in most in most games i would say um, and it is definitely a kind of theme and game that i would like to play with my family with my kids and my and my wife as well yeah that was a big that was a big thing i'm i'm the same way you know i, I i'm married and i have a bunch of kids and and most of the themes that we're drawn to are i don't know how to say kind, kind of more of your pleasant enjoyable like we would like to be in this place in this environment and that was really like a big goal for this theme is do everything we possibly can to make a world that you would say i would just like to live there you know if i could somehow just be in that place kind of like your shire from the lord of the rings just that the ideal little place you want to be and and we we worked really hard to figure out how to do that and with the um amazing artist andrew bosley it just You know, it all came together to create that world that we love. We love being able to make that world, and thankfully, a lot of other people like it too. So it's just it's fun to create in that world. Yes, I have some more questions regarding the theme and the world. Maybe at the at the end of the podcast, because I ask around in the community for some community questions. And all right, sounds good. I actually got a lot of questions regarding the theme of the game, and fun. maybe where you want to. I want to, uh, in which direction you want to develop it in the future. So, okay. um, but you mentioned that um, in Everdell, all the cards you play are more or less permanent and they lay in front of you on a tableau. Mm -hmm. And have you ever thought about, um, or during the design process, was there a phase where you had um, cards that had only one-time effect? 
Yes, to a certain extent. Um, I mean, the design has gone through a, a crazy amount of iterations over the years, and a lot of things changed, and, and a lot of things stayed the same. Um, one of the big inspirations was Race for the Galaxy. Are, are you familiar with Have you played Race for the Galaxy? Um, yes, I'm familiar with it. Okay, yeah. And really, I mean, the core of that game is it is it is basically only cards for the most part. And the strong part about it is they do stay up in front of you. You have to pick which ones you play. They stay in front of you, and then they, they work and they build off of each other. So that was kind of a thing I wanted to do. So that kind of stuck around. Where Things that have changed is the deck had many different things throughout the years. It, it had way back in the beginning um, – and this was a bad design that I discovered. There was uh, houses that were in the deck, and they were cards. And basically, when you would play a house, it would grant you a new worker. And in theory, and okay. you know that sounds kind of neat. The problem with it was, it was hard for you to find houses enough to be able to get a new worker, which was an obvious advantage to have another worker. Mm-hmm. So, Part of the development on that changed in time where houses came out of the deck and they became an option you could always buy. So you could just buy a house and it was a card you play. It would give you another worker. That helped, but the problem with that was you should always buy a house, basically. Because it was your best decision, right? It was, it was always your best dominant. decision. Yeah, okay. yeah. It wasn't really a decision. It was kind of you mm-hmm. should just do it. And so there wasn't a choice there, which is not interesting. And through the course of development with – and this was working with some other people that were helping me as well and just our development over and over. It, it, we started to find a system that we have, which I, I imagine we might get into it, where you just are given workers. Yeah, maybe please elaborate on it. Explain how the, the worker system worked because I really like it that it ramps up at to, towards the end of the game. Yeah, it does, and that I think that's kind of one of the innovations that we were able to find over the time is most worker placement games is is they do have that choice, quote unquote choice, of do you want to get more workers or not? And the ones I've played, anyways, 90% of the time you should get a new worker. Uh, so what Everdell does is it gives you two workers in the beginning of the game, and then you use them. And you play cards, and you're going to reach a point where you can't really do more or you don't want to do more yet because you want to save what you have for later. So then you do what's called prepare for season where you bring your workers back, but only you do this, and then you gain another worker. The game just gives you your workers. So it kind of gets rid of that weird choice of do I get more workers or not. So it just it sort of feeds them to you in a, in a little slow pace throughout the game. So really what that requires you to do is everybody kind of has a set amount of potential turns, and it becomes less a choice of how can I explode the game into having as many turns as possible, and more how can I be as really extremely efficient with every single turn that I have, which I'm happy that it came to that point, but it wasn't always that way in the beginning. So kind of all coming all the way back to what you're talking about, Uh, cards in the deck and that sort of thing. I feel like I had mechanics in the deck as far as uh, through cards that needed to be broken out and put elsewhere into the game and into the system. So houses were in the deck, like I talked about. Also, events themselves were actually in the deck in okay. the beginning, um, which was a which was quite a different thing. You would come across a card that would have requirements on it in order to achieve it, which was an event. And a lot of the events kind of had some similarities to like they do now. Now the events are outside of the deck. They're 
common goals that everyone was trying to go for, but they used to be within the deck. And it was interesting in the sense that you would come across an event card and you would have to wager, do I keep this for a while in my hand and try to achieve it, um, or do I get rid of it so that I can draw something else? And while it was interesting, it it was a mental load because there was a lot of them in the in the deck, and it was also a bit of an unfair swing advantage because you may come across just drawing a random event that was great for you, or you may not. So some of those things had to be just kind of pulled out of the deck and gotten rid of and gone away with throughout the development time. Yeah, that's that's very interesting to hear how, how the game developed because I would not have had the idea that the events were in the deck at the beginning. And they were, and there was a lot of them, and they, they even got to a point one time where as we were trying to figure out how to make the event cards feel slightly more balanced or maybe fair, where there was two events on one card. So you would spin it around and you'd read one side of it, you'd spin around and read the other side of it. And it was it was kind of messy. I mean, we were finding things and playing and learning and experimenting. But ultimately, when they finally got out of the deck, it was far better. It just took a while to figure that out. Yeah, and why does it always take so long to figure figure these things out? At the end, it always seems so obvious, but when you are in the design process, um, well, it doesn't doesn't uh, seem to be so obvious then. No, it certainly <laughs> doesn't. And you know, Everdell was really my first, the first game that went somewhere. I had tried other things before, but they were they were not even worth trying again, and didn't go anywhere. And so, I feel like there was a lot of things to learn and. Um, I don't think I would make some of those same mistakes now, but I know I'm going to make other ones. And um, I guess you say over time you kind of learn, well, that's probably a bad idea, so don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So maybe before we dive deeper into the mechanics of Everdell, maybe it makes sense to talk a little bit about um, synergy in general. Because mm -hmm. uh, my feeling is, um, if I ask uh, another question, it will tackle the synergy part of the of Everdell already. Mm -hmm. So we should probably start by um, more or less defining what synergy actually means in in, in board games, or um, also what what does what what are combos and what are engines. Can you maybe explain to to us what what you understand when we talk about synergy? Yeah, I understand synergies and combos myself in two different is two different things. Um, if I think about combos in general, I think about if I play these two cards together, they're going to bounce off of each other and affect each other and um, create a better outcome than they would have by themselves. That, for me, is usually how um, a combo happens. It's kind of not just one effect, but a stair-step of effects that go, 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 and kind of domino effect. For me, as I think of combos, that's that's kind of how it It goes and how it builds. Um, I think that Everdell is less on combos because you play one card at a time. However, there is a there is a time when I think combos happen. I think it's more about synergies. And from, from my understanding of synergies and how I view it is that this card by itself can do something or can produce something, but it's going to be better or it requires another ability in order for it to happen. And as you get more of them, those cards that you had are now becoming abundantly better as they go throughout the game. But they're not they're not going off at the exact same moment. It's kind of a, a, a slight difference, but to me, I think it's an important one. And where I understand Everdell having the combo feeling is that um, 
there's a there's a phase of the game called production. It's when every green card in your city is going to activate. And these cards really do combo off of each other, that having one makes the other one go or work this way and creates this system and this thing for you. And uh, production happens at certain points throughout the game. So I don't know. How do, how do you feel about combos and synergies? Do you view them differently? Well, I view them quite similar. I My, my definition comes from... Um more from the strategy card games. Um, I played mm-hmm. a lot of Magic: The Gathering. I don't know if you if you are into that game as well. I ha- I'm not str- not into Magic, but I did play um, the Star Wars Star Wars trading card game and some other ones along the line. I I never I never got sucked straight into Magic, but I know very much about it and games of the sort. Yep. Okay, because um, in Magic, if you combo off, um, that typically mm-hmm. means you combine different cards and um, as you mentioned, they they have a repetitive effect, and most of the time, if you combo off, you win the game. So it it, right. it is it is a, such a strong thing that it um, in, sometimes immediately ends the game. So there are some kind of decks which are combo decks, and they typically mm-hmm. require three or four combo pieces. And once you have these three or four pieces together, they actually have a very strong effect that typically wins you the game. Right. So this is for me how how I few combos. Um, and synergy is more like the interaction between different elements. And when you combine mm-hmm. these um, elements, they create an effect that is greater than the sum of the individual elements. Um, that is pretty much what you already said. And mm-hmm. um, when you have synergies in your game, what you really ask from your players when your game contains these synergies mm-hmm. is to find these connections between your mm-hmm. game's elements. And mm-hmm. This requires a lot of creativity from the players, and that is what I love so much about Synergy, that you can find these combinations between cards that are not obvious and that give you the chance to, to discover more of the game. And what I, what I also like about, um, about Everdell is that all of the cards say they do, do something. So there's no card that has no effect without the synergy so typically you have a card um, and it does something but when you combine it with another card it has a stronger effect and this is this for me is synergy Mm -hmm. i i i agree and that's you know that's one of my favorite aspects of all games and i usually gravitate toward games that are like that that give me a sense of discovery and a little bit of a sandbox moment of what if i go this way what if i pull this what if i try that and you know, finding the roads that that work, that are exciting. I I love that type of game. That's what I wanted to try and make. Um, turns out it's not easy to yeah. figure out how to do it. <laughs> yeah, we will talk about that later. Um, I have um, one example as well. Typically, um, in in Germany, uh, soccer is a very um, prominent mm-hmm. sport. And typically you have a, in during, during a season, you have a team that has a lot of very good individual players. And, um, they earn a lot of money and they're typically the best team in the, in the league. But there's also some of the other teams which have not these very strong individual players, but they are working very good together as a team. Mm-hmm. So this is pretty much what I understand as synergy. So people are working together better than the others. And therefore, they are able to win with synergy compared to maybe, let's say, cards now that are very strong but do not have synergy. 
Are you making a soccer game? Because it sounds like you've got it figured out. <laughs> no, 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 I don't. I'm making a, a, a fantasy card game. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yes, I think that's a really good example of it that, um, you know, in in Everdell, you're not creating a deck like a deck yeah. builder um, or, or like a collectible card game like Magic or something. But in a way, your tableau is kind of your deck. It's just always working um, the whole entire time. Yeah, and I mean, you have the, the meadow, which is the area where cards um, are available for all the players. Mm-hmm. Uh, more, for me, it's more or less like a, a hand anyone can use um, yes, to is. a certain degree. And this feels a little bit like um, like other deck building games where you have a market where you can buy cards. Mm-hmm. So it has mm-hmm. some kind of similarity for me compared to um, deck building games. Mm-hmm. Um, however... When I um, prepared for the for the show, I um, read an article from Mark Rosewater. I don't know if you know him. He is um, the lead designer of Magic: The Gathering. Mm-hmm. Yep, I I've listened to some of his talks. Yeah, yep. and in my in my eyes, he is one of the most important content creators for game design as well. Um, mm-hmm. And he wrote an article about um, synergy in Magic: The Gathering. And um, he came up with five different reasons why synergy is important. And um, the first one we already touched, the first one was um, Synergy creates discovery. That mm-hmm. means with Synergy, you are able to hide aspects of the game that players then have to find. They have to actually look for it. Um, and that means some kind of added play value that you have because people are going to discover new things um, and it is, um, you can play the game longer before it really becomes repetitive. And I think this is also true for Everdell. Every time you play Everdell, you have uh, different cards, you have different combinations, and you have to figure out again how um, the strategy for for this run. So it's not um, not always the same. And I think um, this synergy does a great job in um, in achieving this. Yeah, absolutely, it does. And like I said, that's something that I love in games. I I, I like to I like to finish a game and feel like like maybe I I went up and I saw the forest but i haven't even gone into it yet and to discover and see what else is new in there and to discover different paths and and uh yeah no i i i think he's right on with that discovery is a a really fun and exciting thing that synergy can bring yeah and um this the second thing is um, also something you already mentioned it's players really like to feel good about themselves and Mm. this is also what synergy um, can create and um you have to find these connections and maybe you are the only one um, who has seen the connection yeah? and um, no one else has. And at the end, if you win, you feel clever and that is what most games are about. Yeah, I I agree. I love that. I love that, that sense of I built something and I was able to get these two little pieces to do this cool little thing and and fire off and go this cool way. And um, it, it becomes far less about winning or losing and far more about the journey of the game and 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 the building and the progression and the the things that happen. Yeah, maybe maybe let me throw in a question about Everdell in here, um, yeah. because sometimes when you play Everdell, you create a strategy in your head. Because um, we have we talked about the the meadow, the the cards that are in the middle of the table, which are available for everyone, and there is a card you really want to have, but the the other players maybe have the same strategy and when they pick the card it is gone so maybe you you have to adapt your strategy um again and again and again so the question is um has this ever felt 
Has it has this been a problem for some players that they maybe didn't like that that part because they have made up their strategy in their mind and at the end uh, someone else uh, destroyed their entire strategy? Yeah, I think that it's. I think it feels like more of an issue for people that are a little bit more new to the game, in a, in a way, because as I think as you get to know the deck of cards and the abilities more you begin to understand and realize there's other ways and there's other things that you can do that is not solely dependent on that one card or that one that one way you thought that you should go. There's something else that's going to work for you. And, you know, I've seen a lot of games where you may feel like you're beginning the game not as strong as you had hoped that you would and somebody else is, and it swivels um, at this point in the game where it's working for you now. Your buildup was a lot slower to figure out how to get this thing to work, but it started working and you're, and you're finding the things that you need. And the other thing that that really does, having that open hand in the, in the middle, the meadow, is um, it does in a way force you to try and experiment with something different. Because if you always had 100% control over the cards you're going to choose to play and no one could take it, it could lead you more toward going down a similar track every single time. And so part of the hope and the goal with that is in a really subtle way to nudge players to say, try something different, try something different, see what else you can find and what else you can do. But on the flip side, there is that potential for frustration. I wanted that card. I needed that card, you know, and it's, and it's gone. So I guess it's that thing of balancing Like with a, with a mechanic in the game, is it worth it to have that potential frustration from someone for the returns that it can potentially give in the long run of encouraging exploration and um, trying new routes? And we decided it was worth it, <laughs> for better or for worse. Well, I love it. I love it. Um, yeah. um, but um, I'm also a player that, um, that really likes to adapt the strategy during the game. Yes, and yeah, um, I think you 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 made a very good point there in your argumentation because you said that there's also always another route you can take. That means mm -hmm. there is there are no dead cards in the game because there's also always another possibility to um, to combine the card with, for example, there are other synergies available, and the card also still has a basic effect all the time. So your strategy is not entirely broken and you lose the game on the spot if this happens, that someone picks a card you were looking for. Um, and I think this is a very good, very good design here that you always have different routes that you can take. You know, you said something there that was really important and that from, from day one has been the goal for the game and has taken years and countless thousands of hours of playtesting to figure out. And I don't think we even got it perfect in the end, honestly. But the idea that every card is good. And that's really hard to figure out how to do because every card needs to be good, but every card can't be equal. Because if every card is equal, then no card is interesting anymore. Um, but if every card is good, then every card is a decision by itself. Um, and I... For me, I think that that's where a game can become really intriguing. So how do we find that? And there's no way to do it except to playtest it countless times. But to playtest it with a mind of, have I avoided this card every time mm. or most times? And if I have, why? 
And then on the flip side, the other extreme, do I play this card every time? And if I do, why? And does that mean it is a little bit too good? But that weird thing, like I said, that that, that I think that I'm discovering anyways, because I'm I'm really still learning so much of these things, is that that thing I said, every card is good, but not every card is equal. Because all cards equal are, are not interesting, to me anyways. Yeah, that's right. Do you have some practical advice for the for the playtesting? Do you count how often a card is picked or how often a card um, ends in the game without being picked? Um, did you have some kind of measurement methods there? There's a lot of things that we do and that we try to do. And um, you know, I'm just coming on, on the heels of a big expansion that we are done working on. The people will find out about it soon enough. But it had a, it had a lot of things that we had to think about and we had to, to work on. And sometimes I think what it, a thing that would work is to say, I haven't played this card or, or whatever this thing is in any of the games that we've tested, so I will play it this time. I must play it this time. And it's a weird thing you have to do. You have to turn off your mind because for me anyways – I want to play the game to do as well as I can to try and win, but that is usually not an effective playtesting strategy at all. You have to play everything and every piece of it, even if at the moment you don't feel like it's worth doing. Because if you don't feel like it's worth doing, you're probably right. It's probably not worth doing. Um, but I've had times where I find out that I was wrong, and it was worth doing, and actually it was too much worth doing. It was too good. So there's a lot of stacking the deck to make sure that things happen, that you play them, that you use them. There's a lot of forcing yourself to play this right now, even if you feel like doing something else you're more comfortable with or used to. And then there's a lot of just every single time after we play test, a lot of times we'll sprawl everything out that was in the – in the mode of play at that time and look at every single thing and say, you know, why didn't I do this one or I did do this one and what are these looking like together? Because I can see so much more and so much better when everything sits out at one time um, instead of just looking at a hand or a couple pieces together, but to pull them all out because um, in a game that has a lot of synergies and a lot of cards, everything, everything should pull or push everything else. And I just can't see all that without seeing it all laid out. So that is some of the things that we do is we just force ourselves to use and play everything, especially the things that we don't gravitate toward easily. I think I answered the question somewhere in there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you did. Um, and you also you also mentioned um, complexity. And this is also on the list on of the five things Synergy can do for a game um, of Mark Rosewater. He said um, Synergy can hide complexity. And what he meant by this is that, let's say, card A is a simple card and card B is a simple card. They are easy for beginners to learn, both of them. But when you combine card A and card B, it um, creates something that um, is stronger than um, each card individually. Um, and it is a little bit more complex than before. Um, and Magic the Gathering uses this this mechanic to um, to create a game that is more or less easy to learn um, mm -hmm. and um, hard to master. This brings me to the question um, regarding complexity of Everdell. Have you have you ever had the feeling that the game becomes too complex because you have a lot of um, triggers, for example, on cards? 
Um, and when you have, uh, let's say, three or four or five triggers that you have to remember, have you had the response from playtesters that they were overwhelmed and that it was too complex for them? That has been a continual juggling balancing act from the very beginning of the game, especially as it started moving into or into slightly more serious development. Um, is that exact question right there? Is it too complex? Um, the basic movements of the game are incredibly simple. You know, on your turn, you're playing a card or you're putting down a worker. That's basically it. And you can also prepare for season later, bring them back. But that's essentially all you're doing. There's not a list of five, six, seven actions that you can do. There's not five, six, seven different tracks on the board. It, it's it's none of that. It's put a guy down and play a card. Um, so really what you're saying is, what you're asking is a very important question, is the cards. And it's something I'm continuing to learn is how to make a complex card that is really simple. Um, complex meaning that it, it's going to work for you in more than, than its clear written way. Um, it's really tricky to do, and, and in my experience, it takes more than one try on that card. And uh, we've had cards that we've worked on over and over and over and reiterated and reiterated and tried and just just gotten rid of them completely, or they become something totally different. It's really challenging to have a card that you can read whatever it is once, and you can read it very quickly, and that you understand how to use it and how it works. Um, and then, that's level one, but then the cards that are really great is when they have a level two that you don't immediately see within the text of the card, that later you discover, oh, because it does that, I can do this with it at this later point. And that, for me, is the goal of mostly all of the cards to do that. So they have to be just chopped down to their core essence of what exactly is this card and how can we make that as clear as possible but give it that undiscovered weight later. And I, I wish I knew how to snap my fingers and make that happen. I don't. I, I just, I'm discovering it by countless trial and error playtesting forever. <laughs> <laughs> if you if you ever find uh, the magic formula here, please please share it with me because I want to achieve the very same thing with my cards. <laughs> yes, sometimes I feel like I think I figured that out, and then I, and then on the next set of cards or whatever, I realize I don't, I don't, I'm not sure how to do this. <laughs> uh, I, I find a lot of things is is that I'm that I'm trying to start to learn is how to how to ask the right questions, um, though I don't know the answers yet to them, but. I'm finding that to be really powerful in my design process is um, is the questions. And I have a really great development team uh, with a publisher, and they're extremely good about asking those questions and making me think, even if none of us know the answer. That that doesn't matter yet. We're, we're going to find the answer. We have to. And But if we don't ask those questions, those right ones, we'll never get to it. And... So that's really what I'm learning how to do is just to ask the question, is this card right? Is this interesting? Does it work? Is it just convoluted and doesn't need to be? That sort of thing. Okay. That, sound, that sounds great. Do you have a specific example or a specific bunch of questions that you ask for, for every card? Or do you create these questions um, for each individual card? Yeah, I think, I think there's, there's a, some unwritten questions that, that I perhaps ask when, I, when I'm creating the card that are obvious is um, when you know the ability, does it sound appealing? 
does it sound appealing to do? Because every card should be tempting to play. That's the goal. You want to play every single card. And so does it sound tempting, the the thing I'm offering you with this card? Because that's really what it is. You, the designer, are offering your player a menu. And everything on the menu should look good and should look appealing. So that needs to be first thing. Does it seem appealing? And at the exact same time and almost the same equal way is, is it clear? Do you understand it? Because if you have to read it two or three times, it pulls you out of the game and it becomes a, a learning textbook of understanding the concept where um, it starts to lose it. So is it is it tempting? Is it clear? Is question number one. And then and then the question starts to become, like I was kind of talking about, do you play it? Are people playing it? Um, and if you're not playing it, perhaps it's not tempting enough or it's not clear enough. Usually I find it's one of those two problems. And they're both equally important because if a card seems seems hard to grasp, people usually are not going to try it because they they're comfortable with something else. And you know, I now looking back on it, I could point to examples in Everdell where I feel like I would have done something different on certain cards here and there because of those two questions that arise and you know, they are what they are now, um, but it's just kind of one of those things that I'm learning as I go forward, those two questions, that when those two questions are asked, the answers usually create more questions, <laughs> uh, and the process just goes on the road. Would you be willing to share these two cards that would be different? <laughs> <laughs> I, I may be going down dangerous territory doing something like that, wouldn't I? Um, no, I'm fine. I'm fine sharing it. I... I would never stand up on a mountain and say this is the most perfect game that's ever been created because it's because it's not. You know, people have enjoyed it, and and I'm very thankful for that, and I'm happy with a lot of what we created, most all of what we created. Um, but I look at certain cards, and and they're kind of ones that I began to feel were maybe off, or the community at large kind of sense that maybe they're off in a way. I can give you two examples, um, but. You know this as a designer. You always question everything of course. Right, that you make, and you, and you always think that was wrong, that was wrong, that was wrong. Um, and I, I think a part of that – I'm veering off here, and I'll, I'll circle back around. But I, I think a part of that, and this is another thing I'm learning, is that for me, as, as I work on a design for a long time, I start to get slightly bored with it. Um, and when I say bored, I mean I get used to it. Uh, I get used to how things work, and since I'm in control of it, I – I invariably ask the question, what if it was this other way? And that's not always the right question to ask because uh, you may be not improving it, but you may just be changing it because you're used to it and you're bored with it. And the only way to know if uh, you are improving it or if you're just bored is to let somebody else play it. You have to. You have to let other people play test your game because um, they're not in charge of it. They don't know it inside and out. They don't have the possibility to change it like you do, and it may be right, and it may be right on for them, um, and it may be right on for the game, but you won't know that if you just design kind of in a vacuum and only play test by yourself. So circling back around um, you know, to specific things and specific cards, I, I changed so many cards over the years, and some of them I changed, I think, because I was bored of them, uh, but most of them I think I changed to improve them. But specifically, I'll give you two examples. One is the dungeon card, which is one of my favorite cards in the game uh, with how it functions and how it works. Um, 
but I, but I don't think that it passes those two criteria um, fully. The one criteria that it needs to pass is, is it tempting to play? And I don't think it's tempting to play unless you understand the game as a whole, because uh, it essentially lets you get rid of cards from your city and put them underneath it, and um, then it gives you a discount to build something else. But it's not worth points, really, to have in your city, and it seems a little expensive. And why would I want to get rid of cards from my city? These are the questions mm -hmm. that arise the first time that you read it. Uh, I think people that are experienced with the game would understand those later, and there could be an argument to be made that it's a card that rewards you coming back to it, I suppose. Um, but I feel that it's not as strong as it could have been in that sense, that it doesn't seem tempting at first. It seems kind of, why would I do that? And then it also fails on the other criteria of, is it clear? And it's not clear. It has a lot of text on it. And um, you scratch your head after you read it and, th and, and try and understand, first of all, how does this work exactly? And why would I do this exactly? Um, I think the function of the card in and of itself is interesting, and you find out later because there are some cards that you play that are worth zero points that you want to get rid of because um, they take up a space in your city, and you will fill out your city typically. But you don't understand that when you look at that card at first, so that card's just going to be passed by most often. Um, you may find it later, or you may just never find it because in your mind you passed by it. Have you found that? Have you played the dungeon card? Yes, I, lo I love the dungeon card because uh, at the end, um, it can happen that you still have resources, but you do not have spots in your city. Um, yeah. And it allows you to, to, to gain that spots again. But I would agree um, that it is definitely one of the most complex cards of the game. And um, when you play the game for the first time, um, I'm pretty sure you do not really get why you should um, should use that card until the very end of the game. Hmm. Yeah. But I, love, but I like the card. I like the card too. It's one of my favorite cards. I, I, but I think that's one that I feel like I, I would have refined more to, to generate a similar effect, but in a better way. Yeah, and then maybe we see uh, another version of it in the, uh, in the big expansion you were talking about. Oh, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you two more cards here, spilling my dirty secrets. I feel like here, um, the chapel is a card that I had many different iterations over the years of and worked with for a long time, and for a, and this this is something again I'm learning here is um, be careful when you're adjusting something that's too powerful that you don't go too extreme, which I think we did with the chapel. Um, it was too powerful for a long time. And but but it was too powerful at a different time of the game when you had more freedom with the amount of workers that you had. At that time, it was too strong because you could get to it a lot and get a lot of points out of it. Um, and it was and it gave you a ridiculous amount of cards in its early iterations. And as other pieces of the as other levers and weights of the game changed, that card continued to be powerful. And feel too powerful, so we adjusted it, and now I think it's not as powerful as it should be. Um, it's okay, and in certain situations, it's pretty good. Um, and like I said, not every card should be equal, but I don't think it's as good as it should be for itself. And that's a caution and a thing, like I said, that I'm learning is not to not to over mm, over adjust going one direction or the other. To just to just make 
very tiny changes and then play it again um, is the best way that I'm discovering. Um, I love that advice, by the way, because I, yeah. I, I struggle myself with um, becoming bored with my design after a time. And then mm. I <laughs> I often want to make a drastic change to the game, but I'm not sure if it always is the right decision. Um, and I I totally agree that only others can 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 help you to make this decision in this spot. And it's really hard sometimes to do that. Uh, you know, I'm I'm very blessed in that my wife is my number one playtester, and um, we're able to playtest uh, quite a bit uh, with stuff. Um, but even even we run into an issue where we, like I said, we'll play it over and over, and we have kind of our thoughts about it. And we need somebody else to play it. There's just no way to do it by yourself and have it be as good as it can potentially be. Um, so, yeah. So learning learning to adjust in very small increments is is proving to be better for me as a designer. And the final card I'll say is is probably the one that you would expect, and that's the fool. Um, there's been countless people talk about the fool. It's the basically only mean card in the game. And you play it into another opponent's city. It takes up a space in their city. It's worth negative points. Now, there's ways to get around him with that card we already talked about, like the dungeon. But again, I'm talking about a card to get rid of him, which I think is a card that is too convoluted, which is the dungeon. So um, <laughs> it's it's a, it's a cycle of an, an issue. Um, I would have done something different with the full card, Um With the knowledge I have now as a designer, um, you know it's it's too late. It's the color that's in the game, and and uh, people can still get a kick out of it, but it can cause a lot of frustration and problem too. So, but you know, it's just I know a lot of designers do this, and I see it and feel it now since I'm on the other side of it. You look back and you think of all the things you could have done differently, of and I suppose that's healthy because you will hopefully take from them and learn how to be better. So sorry for the really long rabbit trail there, but uh, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely fine. Um, I, I love the the insights here. Um, one 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 follow up question with regard to the show title: um, Would you consider the um, interaction between the dungeon and the fool a synergy? Yes, because so this is the thing about the fool that becomes interesting. There's at least two cards in the base game that make the fool good to have in your city and and that's the point that's the spot where he's interesting one of them is the dungeon because and, and and i would consider it a synergy because you cannot use the dungeon without another card it's useless by itself um its ability is useless by itself however the fool allows you to open it up so i would call it a synergy and so you if you are played the fool into your city and you have the dungeon You can put that fool underneath the dungeon. He's now gone from your city. The spot's opened up. You got rid of his negative points. But more than that, and I think this is what makes it a synergy, it grants you the ability of the dungeon, which is then to immediately play another card for three less resources, which is pretty powerful, especially because those resources are wild and they can be pebbles, which are really hard to get. Um, yeah, I would consider it a synergy. And then the other one is the university, which is similar to the dungeon, um, but I think a better card as far as design because it's more clear and that you can go there and get rid of a card from your city. And not only are you getting rid of it, but you're getting the bonus of its listed resources plus some other little bonuses. So the fool being um, three berries, you could get those berries back even though you never had to pay for them. So I do think it becomes a synergy if you have the cards to counter it and work with it. 
Do you? Yes, yes. I, I love your explanation there. It, um, it totally makes sense for me. Maybe let's get into the design process a little bit of the of the synergy, synergistic cards here. Do you have a specific method to design synergy on cards? So um, do you look at the cards when you design them individually or do you design um, a whole bunch um, at once that you want to um, work together where you want to create the synergy on these different cards? Um, or how do you how do you start this design process of a card that should be synergistic? Well, I've done all of those over the years and done all of them right and done all of them wrong. And I'm trying to figure out how to do it right more often <laughs> than wrong now. Um, but I think the best way that I have found when it works the best is when I do, like you said, I'm designing a card based off of every other card. But that's really hard when you're first starting because you don't have every other card yet. <laughs> yes. You know, and um, it's 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 very hard to you cannot see the hole until you've made the hole, and then the hole is is broken, and then you have to recreate the hole, but you can't do that without the hole. And I think the best cards are the ones that are designed based off of the hole, where um, they can do a little bit of something by themselves, um, but they can do a lot of something not with only one other card, but with a bunch of other cards in a bunch of other ways like one one small chain of an example and i'll use everdell because i know it the best is um the first card I ever made is the farm which is basically being unchanged from the very very beginning which is pretty wild um, but the cost is the same the value is the same and the ability is the same basically you nailed it um, yeah, from the exact same one. Yeah, but see, that was a weird situation because, like I just said, I had no idea what the hole was at all. I just made a card. And uh, and so as a, as a chain to that is this is, these are, this is a very simple example of a chain, but it, it's exciting to play is that the farm will give you a berry. Um, and so you, you have a berry, and you can do a lot of things with it. And then if you play the chip sweep card, it makes your green cards hit again. So you could get another berry. I've got two berries now, um, and I could do stuff with it. And then if I do one third card called the Monk, the Monk, when he's played as a green card or activated, he can let me give those berries away to somebody else for a nice amount of points. So it's a little chain that was that is kind of built, but you as the player will build it. But I had no idea that that chain existed in any fashion at all when I made the farm. I just wanted people to get food. I didn't know what they were going to do with it yet, but I was figuring that out, and um, I was able to. And I was able to see chains like that at the end. And then the best way to do it is to recognize potential for those chains, and then really let those chains become satisfying to players. But even better is to make it so they're not one-way roads, so they can go multiple different paths to work with different cards and then different cards and then different cards in some fashion. And it's it's extremely hard to figure out, and, and I haven't mastered it by any means. I'm just starting to understand it. But to me, I think that is what becomes super exciting, whereas each card has five potentials over mm. the course of the game instead of only one clear potential. Yeah, and I think this is this is one very, very important design choice here. When you start designing that you do not have one particular chain or combo or synergy in mind, um, but that you create these different dependencies. So some cards um, are dependent on 
on other cards and that could be specific cards or it could be specific card types for example um, mm -hmm. and once you have this dependencies um, you then can create other cards um, that can answer this um, this dependencies and this question that the other cards ask to the game or to the player so um, Once you created this need for one card, you, as a designer, think have to make sure that you can fulfill that need in different ways, not only one way. And this sometimes is also challenging for for you as a designer, at least it is for me, um, to to brainstorm a lot of different ideas to trigger one of these dependencies that I've created. Um, and I think only only playtesting can also be here the answer to to find the right amount of cards that trigger this one dependency. And I don't know, maybe maybe you have some um, some numbers here for us. Um, so do you have a a perfect number? So let's say you have one card that has a dependency. Uh, whenever you do thing X, how many other cards do you need that really trigger that dependency? Is there a magic number out there or is it just something you can f find out um, via playtesting? Yeah, I don't think there's a magic number, but I do think there is a number that is helpful to shoot for. And I, this is a number that I have found. This is a number that I have heard talked about uh, at different points from different designers and things. And it's a number that I always keep falling back on in all my designs. And I think it's the most powerful number in game design, and that's three. I think the three is always your friend, um, and I've even heard other things outside of the game design world that um, people usually can consider three options, but beyond that, it starts to get a little muddy um, in it just design process or uh, thought process and of everything in life. Um, if you if you give someone two bags of chips, it's kind of a choice, but it is maybe not interesting. Three becomes a really interesting choice. Four starts to get a little muddy. I, it's not true with everyone, but I think it's a typical feeling. And I find it's kind of true with me. So I find three is this really powerful number within game design that three options is interesting. Two is kind of not as interesting. And four is a little confusing. Now, how to make sure you've only got three or that you have at least three can become really hard to do. Um, But I start to get hesitant about a card that has one or two uh, feelings or choices or, or senses about it, but I stretch to find three. I start to get concerned about a card or a piece of the game that's like that. Um, and then I, on the flip side, I start to get concerned about something that has uh, starts with three and goes up from there, that maybe it's maybe it's going further than it should. So from my experience with Everdell, there are different kind of synergies in the game so for example you have this um, sometimes you reference a specific card so um, let's say some some of uh, the the buildings allow you to play a critter for free mm -hmm. so you can you name a specific card that it synergizes with and sometimes you uh, you reference a card type um, that is um, where you have way more than one option to use with so um, have you made this distinction on purpose or this two different kind of synergies in the game right so i'm not sure that i would consider the um so i'll back up and explain just just a little bit more there's there's two main types of cards in the deck there's constructions 
and then there's critters. And constructions are uh, played by a combination of three resources, which is pebbles, resin, and uh, twigs. And critters are only ever played by berries. Um, it's the only way that you can play them. And uh, every construction can give you a free critter, but it is a specific one uh, that it will that it will grant you. So obvious one, the inn will let you play an innkeeper for free. You don't have to pay for the innkeeper. He just goes down. You do, however, have to mark the inn, so you're not getting another innkeeper for free later in the game. You can only do one, um, but it allows you to play the innkeeper for free. Now, so that seems like a really specific synergy, um, but it, I, I had a couple thoughts on that as far as the design, and 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 you can you can tell me if you think I'm if I'm off because I, maybe I am and I'm okay with that, <laughs> but. Um, a couple things was that uh, I made – one thing was I made berries overall harder to get most of the time in general um, as far as with a worker. They're harder to get. There are there are forest locations which are randomized, and some of those have more berries. But you can have a game set up where there's almost no place to get berries except for one berry. So um, in general, uh, with the start of the game – Critters are maybe more expensive or harder to come to achieve than a construction card. So that's one thought under this consideration of uh, the process. The other thought under the consideration of the process is um, I, I don't only want to create I didn't only want to create balance and synergies in the game. I wanted to create moments of excitement within the game, which is one of the hardest things to balance. Because usually, as far as what I find, excitement is a moment when you really kind of break the rules in some sort of cool way. And playing a critter for free breaks the rules a lot. And it's exciting when you're able to do that, when you're able to find it, when you're able to and, and pull that off. Um, so that was kind of one of the, the thoughts behind it was a moment of excitement that I could play this critter for free. And it was cool, and it was exciting that I could make that happen. Um, and I wanted to have those sparks. Um, Seven Wonders is the same thing, that uh, cards will chain with specific other cards. And it's it's dangerous as a balance issue. And, and I think even Everdahl has moments where um, perhaps you could call it, quote-unquote, luck that you found that critter that links up with your card. Um, but on the, on the flip side, everybody has that potential because every card is going to potentially give you something free. So, I mean, that was kind of some of the thought process behind that. I don't know if I would specifically call that a synergy, um, but maybe more of like a a bonus or a reward, Yeah, I suppose. What are you, your feelings on that? You're, you're maybe right. Um, so I have two follow-up questions. The first one is... Yeah. Um, it does not only create moments of excitement for me. For me, it mm. is very thematic. So if, mm -hmm. if I build the inn, I get the innkeeper for free if it is available. This is very thematic for me. Um, mm -hmm. And therefore, the question would be, is this something that you added because of the theme later to the game? Or was this um, in the beginning already in the game when you created, created more, the, more the mechanics of the game? You know, I've tried to find in the archives of this when this mechanic happened and I I can't find it. <laughs> I cannot I cannot find it. I for life of me I cannot remember if it was there from day one or if it came. I do know it came soon. 
if it was not there from the beginning. Um, but you know, I started designing Everdoll seven years ago, and uh, and so that one got I, I couldn't remember, but I remember when I did des- when I did figure that out, it never went away, um, and it became it had to be thematic. That was another thing I, that we didn't really talk about that I kind of wanted to just talk about for a minute was when I was creating it, I I was creating every card off of the theme of the card before the mechanic of the card, all the way back to that really ex- easy, easy example of a farm. Um, for me, the farm was going to give you food, and it was never going to do some weird, bizarre thing like convert three brown cubes into a yellow cube or something like that. Um, it was going to give you food because a farm gives you food. And that, as easy as it is and as clear and, and obvious as it seems, that card and that idea was the foundation for every single card later, every single thought later. It had – I would – I built a farm and I thought, well, what else can be in a medieval city, um, an inn? Okay, how can this seem thematic to an inn? Not how can this seem balanced to my system and my – and all these things I made, but does it feel like an inn? In some way, in some fashion, and that's how I made every card, and that's still how I make every single card. Um, sometimes now, later, I'll have an idea for a card ability um, that would be, you know, fun to play with. But it always has to be—it's got to be the theme of it because that makes it come alive to you. So, so yes, the the um, the citizens linking up with the buildings was very much a a way to give that theme, like you're talking about. Thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, I love it. Um, and there's also one an, one other card. I don't know the name. Is it a ruin or stuff, something like that? Yes. That, yeah, I love I love the theme of that card as well. Yeah. So so the the ruins card costs you nothing at yeah. all to play, but you have to get rid of a construction in yeah, your city. It, it's it becomes so dramatic. Yeah, and uh, that's another one that I I that's a card that I love, and I'm happy with how it came out. Um, even though it. Uh, Even though it breaks one of those rules, at first you don't know why you would play it, but it but it's very simple. It's extremely clear and simple, and I think that you understand why you would play it pretty quickly, uh, even within the course of a of one game. Whereas the dungeon takes longer, I think maybe to grasp. But uh, yeah, that's a fun one, and um, it's been interesting to watch people wonder about that card. Some people have wondered, is is this just why is this in here? This is just terrible, and then other people have come in and responded with these these systems and these chains that they pulled off with the ruins that are just wild and uh, fun. And I love that, that people can discover those things. Yeah. You, you, you mentioned these chains before and um, that they sometimes caused um, also balancing issues. And I really, really like the constraints that you build in the game. Maybe you can, Tell a little bit um, about the the hand size, for example, the number of construction that you're allowed to build, um, and stuff like that, and why you implemented these these constraints. I think that's a really important question, and it's something I didn't understand the importance of when I first started. When I first started, there were no constraints. Um, so imagine being able to play Everdell with an unlimited hand size and an unlimited city size. It sounds great in the beginning. Because you can terrible. do whatever you want, but when you play it, I imagine it, it will be terrible. It is. It's terrible, and it, it's weird. Um, it's weird, but constraints are perhaps the most important thing that you will design in your game. Um, because constraints are rules. That's what they are. 
and games are nothing if they don't have constraints. Um, take the 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 easiest board game example in the world of Monopoly. Um, dice are the constraints. Now we could argue that it's a bad constraint because it's totally random, but without them, if you could just move freely to any property that you felt like, you do not have a game any longer. Um, and so, without a constraint, you don't have a game. And um, there were constraints, but there were not those two critical constraints of the hand size and the city size. They did not exist in the beginning. So they came to exist out of necessity. That um, The first thing that, that we were starting to realize was it was too much to consider to have beyond eight cards in your hand. Um, even eight is pretty high um, and breaks my rule of three. <laughs> but, <laughs> it does. Uh, yeah, but it's you know it should have been six, I guess, right? It's kind of like the rule of three, but um, but beyond that, it was too much. And we were finding that as we were playing and we could have giant hand size, we would set cards face down on the table that we knew we were not going to use, um, and we would kind of cycle it down toward about eight or so in the hand. And um, when the constraint happened of eight cards only. Now, all of a sudden, what that did is instead of feeling like a weight, it felt like an excitement because every time you drew a card, it felt like it, it was an important aspect of your of your um, what you had control of within the game. Um, and so we were able to then take card drawing and tighten it back down um, to make it really valuable. So now, since I can only hold eight cards in my hand, drawing three cards seems like a pretty big deal. Um, whereas if you have unlimited, you draw four, five, six, whatever, you know, who cares at that point? So that constraint, um, really made it interesting. And, uh, it, it breaks normal conventions. You cannot draw beyond your hand limit and then discard, which most games do when you're at eight, that's it. You can't do anything else. You need to either play these cards or find some way to get them to get rid of them uh, out of your hand. And that just became another lever to be able to pull and to play with. Um, and then the other constraint that is maybe more important than the hand constraint is the city size constraint. And that became essential for the same reason is that we would have cities that were 20 cards or more that just were all over the table and, and just ridiculous and crazy and insane and um that can that number of 15 fluctuated um it was 18 it was 12 it was all over the place trying to find it and i don't think that was a number that i could have designed from the beginning because like everything else it depended on the whole of the system and the whole of the cards and the entirety of the pacing of how many workers do i get and when and how often can cards activate and um, it sunk into being the right number where um, it was not impossible to achieve, um, but it was not also so easy that you always hit it. You kind of hit it at this weird point in the game where you have to start making some really important choices. So without me putting more cost on a card, you yourself have created more cost on that card because it takes up a slot in your city. And I don't even have to write that cost down. It just you you start to understand it, and you start to realize it. And um, now I wonder: should I play another farm late in the game? The berry is nice and whatever else with it, but that's a low point card. 
And so you just as the player put a cost and a weight on that card that I never wrote for you. So those constraints became really powerful to the game and um, they it needed it very badly. <laughs> I, I love your explanation that these constraints created this kind of cost that you do not have to play on the uh, right on the cards. I, I I love that explanation. It's just wonderful. And I also love the idea that this constraints give you new possibilities um, to break the rules in the game. Then it gives you the chance to create other cards that um, allow you to discard hand cards or to get rid of cards in your town. Um, and I think by having this constraints, um, you you created a new design space for you as a game designer. It did, and I didn't know that it would, but but it but it did, and um, yeah. So I, I I'm coming to learn that uh, constraints are perhaps your most valuable tool, and you have to be very careful with them, but um, they're extremely powerful as well. Yes, they are, and they are definitely something that I hadn't in the beginning of my game. So mm. um, I well, I had them to some degree, but some. I had them more written on the card, and then they were too restrictive, and players were not able to do what they wanted to do. I didn't have the the overall constraint in the game, um, and I'm still trying to figure out the right way here, because um, having constraints is um, important on one side, but if they are too restrictive for the players, they can have an inf um, impact on the fun of the game. Um, and for me as a designer, I think it's very difficult to find the sweet spot in between. It, it's hard for me too, and um, I think some of the some of the designers that are masters of these is some of the older designers. Uh, Reiner Knizia, for example, I think in the games I play with him, he is a master of the constraints. Um, and if you if you look at a game like Lost Cities, Lost Cities has this baffling constraint that just hurts your brain so badly and that you have to play a card and then you get to draw a card. It's not the other way around. And, um, you know, that's a constraint that he built. And uh, other constraints within that game of how things work um, are so critical and vital to that game being what it is. And uh, back to Carcassonne talking about that, um, you know, just the constraints that are in that is that you pick one tile and then you have to play that tile. There's There are variations that people do with that game where you hold three tiles in your hand. And uh, while that makes the game perhaps more strategic, to me it's um, – It, it takes away a constraint that I think is so interesting in that game. And, uh, yeah, I find just some, some of those older Euro games, um, or even some of the new ones, like Azul, has some really, really interesting constraints that they make the game. Without them, it just wouldn't be there. So um, that's something I'm trying to learn how to do as well. So I, I hope you're able to find the right constraints because... They can be the best part of the game. <laughs> I'm really, I'm really looking out for them. So yeah. um, we were talking for over an hour now, and um, I, I think I could continue forever because I think it's so amazing to talk to you. And um, oh, you're sorry, really... sorry for taking all the time. No, no, I'm <laughs> I get excited about it. I'm absolutely fine about it. I'm getting excited myself, and um, I have a lot of questions on my list, but um, we probably have to come to an end some. At some point in time. Um, so, do you have anything else you want to share with um, with the audience regarding um, the topic of synergy? Um, I guess I guess as the the things that I'm learning because I I'm really exploring this a lot um, with my designs and things right now, and, and I I learn things um, and and get excited about them. And one thing that I'm experimenting with 
right now with a new design that's that's not Everdell at all. It's a new game. Um, it's a it's a drafting game. Oh, um, I love, drafting is, is my number one uh, game mechanic. Yeah. I love it so much. Yeah, well, wonderful. Well, we should talk about it more off air, and I can get your thoughts on things. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, one thing that I that I think is interesting to explore that I haven't seen a ton in games is. Uh, the concept that um, cards don't work by themselves, but they work with other cards and vice versa. And um, I think just a hint of that is perhaps something that's that's good to think about. We've kind of talked about this is to don't build the full potential for your card into the card itself or the piece or the mechanic or whatever it is. Don't build its entire potential into it. Um, leave out a good portion of its potential and then instead of giving it, um, if you leave if you leave out 50% of its potential, but then the other 50% is fulfilled only in one other way, then I think that you um, that you could do more with it. Um, and this is back to that rule of three. Uh, I think that a piece of your game or a, a card or a mechanic becomes really intriguing when it only has a third of its potential by itself. And um, the other two-thirds are found in other ways. They don't always have to be the other same spots, but they kind of feel like it balances that. Um, and I think finding the way to do that makes a game feel like it's worth coming back to over and over and over. Because you're not just simply fulfilling this potential in one way. You're, you have two choices on how to fulfill it. And this is very broad and abstract. But that's I'm kind of trying to find that type of sense um, in some of the stuff that I'm experimenting with, and and it's useful and helpful to me to sort of think that way. Yes, I love it. And now I have to elaborate a little bit more on that as well, <laughs> because yeah, because um, if you are talking about drafting games and um, synergies, then all my knowledge comes from Magic: The Gathering here again, um, yeah. because I love drafting in Magic, and it always is about finding the strategy that is open on the table that no one else is drafting mm. and therefore you need to identify cards um, that go around the table that would be good in one strategy and in order to do that all of the cards or to make it interesting as a drafting game um, not all of them but mo many cards should be um, should be able to play in more than one strategy that mm -hmm. means they should if you let's let's say you have a card that triggers other cards that means it should not trigger only one type of card maybe it should trigger two types of cards so that this card would be interesting for more than one one drafter on the table it would be interesting for for two people for example um, and this is interesting design that you can that you can bring on the cards that they really address two different dependencies at once and then the next thing is, from my point of view, that you need some kind of resource on a card um, that can be used by, also again, by more than one strategy. In, mm -hmm. in Magic, for example, some cards create plus one, plus one tokens that you put on mm -hmm. the cards. Um, and then other cards um, have specific effects um, that work really well with this plus one, plus one tokens. Um, and there's not only one strategy that works with the plus one plus one token. There are multiple strategies. Um, and so you create this synergy pieces 
that are relevant for more than one or two players on the on the drafting table and i love that because you you really you really have to be clever to find that sweet spot in the um when you're drafting and to find um to find a strategy that is that is open or at least not overpicked i love that too and and that's an important thing i think you said is um consider consider the the resources that the that you can put on a card and resources being a broad term but um there's so many things that can become a resource to a card it can be a symbol it can be a type it can be uh, a number um it can also be an ability which is more challenging to figure out how to have that be a resource and resources don't do anything by themselves they have to be harvested or created or manipulated or not created harvested or manipulated or um, brought to their potential from something else outside of it um, a tree is a tree but a man can cut down a tree and build a house with it but by itself it's a tree it can also provide shade and whatnot but but it's a you know it's a resource and so um, yeah finding finding how much weight to put into a card is also a tricky thing because if a card gets too many resources on it it starts to break that other well for me anyways that other rule of becoming too hard to grasp its potential um you know in the beginning but then the flip side can become an issue as well and that's that's something i'm really exploring in my drafting game it, i'm trying to i'm trying to hone down uh these cards to be um really clear um but you know what they can do and what they are worth but where they where the game the whole game is about the interest of the game state affecting the value of the card. And it's not only your game state, but this drafting game, what I'm trying to do is something I haven't found yet, is that your neighbors on both sides are critical to what you play or what you give them. Not just a little bit, but absolutely 100% critical. So that, um, And it's just your neighbors on both sides that really matter the most to you. So that the card in and of itself is, uh, you see what it could do, but it doesn't reach its full potential until the game state starts to blossom. And then each card becomes heavier and heavier and heavier in its potentiality for yourself or for your neighbor. So a card that looks really simple by itself, as the game has grown, it has also grown, but I never had to write anything more on it to tell you that it grew it just it grows and finding ways to do that i think um for me anyways in, in games can make a, a one simple piece of the game be it a card or a piece become really exciting and more interesting and not just stay the same flat thing as the game moves forward i totally i totally agree and i'm really excited <laughs> to to learn more about your drafting game now um maybe one last magic example here at the end um because it's very simple how they do it at least for the for a very simple aspect of the game um that you have um creatures um that are more or less the same for everyone the creature has a power and a toughness and this is their their base effect that the creature has when you play it but then this creature can have a subtype for example it can be a bear or it can be a wolf or it can be a goblin um, mm -hmm. and this has absolutely no effect on the board nothing hmm? Unless you have other cards that interact with it, for example, right. a, a goblin master that gives all the um, all goblins on the board plus one plus one, or uh, give them another keyword or ability, and um, and I really I really like that in in drafting games. Yeah, you can do a lot with things like that with keywords and stuff, and that's that's really 
you know, that's one of those little lures, and that's really just kind of going on that idea that uh, that third of its potential sort of thing is it's just clearly there. Like you say, it's a goblin, but who cares because you can't do anything with that keyword with that card itself, so it doesn't matter at all. It's just uh, its potential that's out there that's fulfilled with something else. And, I mean, you have to be careful with that that you don't go too crazy uh, and get out of control. But if you do it right, then it uh, it makes it exciting, especially when you can pull off that moment where you have your three goblins and then you have your, you know, whatever it is within the games that uh, that affects them. And, and, and it's an, it's the excitement moment, which is really valuable. Yes, it is. And um, I can I can tell you that um, that in Magic, this makes a, a big portion of the game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So maybe if it's okay for you, let's uh, go to the to the community questions that I have prepared. I'll try and answer them. Yeah, I'll try and answer them faster. <laughs> no, that's fine. Take take your time. I'm absolutely fine with it. And um, yeah, I have I have a bunch of them. We can go through some of them. So maybe let me start with the first one. It is from James, and um, I asked um, he asked this question on BotGangi in the Everdale forum. Um, And his question is regarding theming. And he puts me uh, here, um, he gives me a hard time because um, he used the word anthropomorphic animals. Anthrop- it's very, it's very hard to pronounce for a non-German, yeah, non-English speaker. <laughs> so give, give, give me another try. Anthropomorphic animals. That's very good. Okay. Very good. So um, was the anthropomorphic animals in Woodland Settlements part of the initial design, or did it arise later, being focused on the town building mechanics? Yeah, I sort of talked about that a little bit um, earlier, but uh, it was not part of the original. Um, originally, it was more of a um, kind of medieval city uh, type of thing. There was also some fantasy that came along, but a, a light type of fantasy They came along, but really, uh, that was when when the publisher Sterling Games took it. Uh, the main developer Dan May uh, approached me with that idea of what would I feel like giving it a woodland critter thing, and we didn't know what that looked like yet, but it was just this idea um, to do that. And then, and I loved that idea, and I jumped on board with it, and we took uh, more than a year basically to create. The world of Everdell, because we didn't want to just feel like we, um, you know, swapped out human faces and put on animal faces. Mm-hmm. Uh, we wanted to create their world, and so there was a lot of thought behind every name of what it was and the, the function of. Like as an example, there's one of the cards in the game is called a barge toad, and um, uh, he he gives you some twigs for farms that you have, and. Um, This seems simple, you know, but to get to that, that to get to what he was took a while. And we talked about him and what barge toads do, and that they go along the river and they work for farmers maybe, and they they will like clean up the farms or work on the farms. They gather up these twigs and they have these twig these uh, barges that are full of twigs, and they can take them to different parts in Everdell. And uh, you know, they're handy. They they build things. I mean, that, none of that's on the card, you know, really. Um, but that's what went into that card, building the world. It was really, really important to us, and it continues to be important to us, uh, maybe even more so in the uh, future work that we've done that people will see soon enough, just um, 
the world is really, really, really important to us, and we love being in it, and we want to make, we want to be authentic to it, and and really do as good as we can with it. Yeah, I hope you are using this world again for other game designs, maybe in the future. Um, We've certainly talked about that. So <laughs> I'm sure you did. Um, and I have more questions regarding the world and stuff like that. So maybe a good follow-up question would be, um, what is your favorite um, artwork on a card? The question is from Alicia, also from Board Game Geek. I'm really fond of the Ranger and the Innkeeper and artwork that I can't talk about yet. <laughs> okay, we are looking forward to it. Um, <laughs> Um, and I think you also answered the follow the following question, um, but maybe you can give a short answer to that as well. Um, what were the three greatest inspirations for the design and theme of Everdell? The question is from Bruno, also from Board Game Geek. So for the design, um, Agricola and Race for the Galaxy were the two games that I wanted to take my favorite pieces of and uh, smush them together into something new, and that's what started Everdell. Other games influenced it along the years, um, like Seven Wonders and other ones. Um, but those those two were the the main ones. I think that race. I think that semblances the race for the galaxy are have stuck more and are more apparent than Agricola um, over the years as it changed. But those two were really the ones that put me down that road because those were our favorite games and we were playing them constantly at the time. The theme, like I said, that arose from a suggestion from the developer later, but obviously Redwall uh, was a huge influence. Um, for me specifically, uh, Lord of the Rings was an influence, but not its whole epic story, but the Shire itself. And the Hobbits, when we were talking with the artist, we kind of told him, we want this to look like Red Wall in the Shire, uh, basically. And um, just that sense of this wonderful place that uh, loves the land still and uh, the beauty of nature and the really just like the simplicity of life and enjoying that um, is kind of what we wanted to capture and try and create. Okay, and then uh, a question from Chris from Board Game Eva. Will there be a card with all the mice kits? <laughs> <laughs> so this is this is kind of a, a funny thing because um, the, there's there's two cards in the game that are a husband and wife card, and um, they share a space together. And if they share a space, then you get bonus points. Um, you get three bonus points if they're if they're sharing space. And the the theme behind that is if you look at the um, the wife card, there's three little mice running around. Um, and so that's kind of the fun the fun little theme there that uh, you know, they have three little mice. Um, um, no, I don't think we can make a card with how many how many children they have. Um, but keep your eyes open to stuff in the future. There's a, there's a little, there's a there's a secret little tidbit somewhere somewhere down the line in the future that that sort of talks about this in a fun way. So <laughs> I won't say anymore. But there okay. won't be a card with all of them on there. Okay. <laughs> Probably Great. not. <laughs> yeah, maybe now you have to to add one to your expansion. <laughs> I need to now. Uh. <laughs> so, and then I have um, another question from Thomas um, from the uh, the Facebook group. 
um, of this podcast. Um, he would love to hear um, what you would do different with the graphic design of the cards um, now that the game has been out. Um, particularly, he was asking about the size of the font and the icons um, as well as their placement. Um, he loved the illustrations um, and he wanted to know if you are if you would do anything different with the other stuff. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. That's a that's one piece of feedback we've had a lot is that um, the text is is small on on a number of the cards and that it can be hard to, to grasp and to read. That was a really that was a really tricky thing that we actually put a, a huge amount of thought into uh, when we were creating the the frame for the card, the layout of that tree that goes up over it and that sort of thing. Um, we had a lot of talks about what we wanted that to be because we didn't want it to be generic in any way at all. Um, a lot of games you'll see just have straight, solid lines and little boxes and little orbs and, and that sort of thing to denote um, what it is or its symbol or its name or whatever. And um, we just really wanted to try and make it feel like the card frame itself told you a story and had purpose to it. Um And uh, I think it's beautiful, and I think it's cool what we achieved. Um, maybe it gets a little bit edging on being too beautiful for uh, practicality. I don't know. Um, the text being larger would have been nice. I agree with that. Um, and perhaps it could have been, and maybe it should have been. Um, you know, I don't. I don't know. I don't know for sure. I didn't obviously lay everything out myself, but um, yeah, I, it would have been nice if it was a little bigger. I agree. Okay, that's that's it from the community. Thank you for answering these questions as well. Thank you, uh, Thank James. You. Um, and I think we reached the end of today's show. Well, that's been really fun. Thank you for letting me talk on and on. I could I could talk a lot longer about it. This is the type of thing I think about. All day long, as I'm as I'm learning and processing and trying to become a better designer. Yeah, so so do I, and so do all the listeners of this show. And um, it was an an honor for us to to be part of your of your design process, of your thoughts, and um, thank you for sharing all these insights of your own journey. Oh, thank you so much. And if anybody wants to chat to me about anything else here, I. I don't really exist in the uh, social media anywhere on uh, online except for on BoardGameGeek. You can reach out to me there, and I'm on the forums and stuff of Everdell. And um, yeah, feel free to chat with me about anything Everdell related or otherwise. I would love to talk with anyone. Yeah, that's actually um, how I contacted you as well. Um, mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I would love to talk to you um, again about these kind of topics. So um, maybe we can we can have another chat in the future. I would love to. I would too. Just let me know. Thanks, Marin. So thanks again, James, and wish you all the best for your upcoming expansion. Thank you. And that's it for today's interview. I hope you enjoyed my talk with James Wilson. Um, I definitely did. I could easily have talked to him for another hour or two. James is so passionate about game design and uh, he shared so many insights from his design process. Um, I can only say thank you, James. That was a great interview. If you have any follow-up questions to James, please share them on um, the Nerd Like a Boss website or um, at the Nerd Lab Facebook page. Thanks a lot for listening and until next week, keep shooting for the moon and nerd like a boss.